Today we're going to be reading, continuing in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 through 38. Yes, 38. Um, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 660. Follow along with me as I read. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain in as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, she will have trouble in the flesh, but I will spare you. But this I say, brethren, in the time, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who are in the world are not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of this world, things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between the wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, that I may, be, may put a leash on you. But for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it may be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity but his, has power over his own will, has, no deter, has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for that ability to gather together and be in worship and pray that you would uh, lead us today in spirit. And I pray that you would uh, bless Bruce as he comes and teaches us this lesson, and that he would, you give him the words to speak. Pray this in your name, Amen. This morning we are concluding our series "Redeemed" that we've been in for the last three Sundays, uh, looking at God's design for sex, marriage, and singleness. And today we're going to focus on. God's design for singleness. And uh, before we get started, I just want to direct your attention to a couple of inserts in your bulletin there uh, and encourage each of you, all of us, to read, take these inserts home, read them this afternoon or, or perhaps this week, but especially to those of you who are single or single again, uh, to take one these inserts. One is called, Will I Be Single Forever? And it kind of kind of gives a, a perspective, a biblical perspective, a big picture perspective on singleness uh, in light of eternity. And the other one is, how can you live without sex? And, uh, and so I encourage you to take these home, read them, and I think you will benefit and be encouraged by them. I want to begin with a quote by the comedian Chris Rock, who has said on several occasions in his comedian show, he's made this statement. 
Do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? Unfortunately, we tend to think those are the only two options when it comes to singleness or to marriage. But Paul here in our text that Jeremy read for us, he presents a radically different view than what Chris Rock poses. And Paul's view is based on a gospel reality. It's based on the fact that God redeems both marriage and singleness for our good and ultimately for God's glory. The problem is our culture connects our identities with our marital status in very unhealthy ways. The value of marriage and the value of singleness has changed dramatically in the last 60 years. One survey found that four in ten Americans said that marriage was becoming obsolete. In 1950, 22% of the population in America was single. Today, for the first time in American history, there are now more singles than there are married people in America. Many singles are getting married later in life, and many more are simply choosing to live together instead of committing to marriage. Now, there are various reasons for this, but at the core, singleness is idolized, and marriage is redefined to accommodate it. That is, marriage is viewed oftentimes as something that is restrictive to my personal freedom. It's a hindrance to my independence as, as a person. Younger adults believe that life fulfillment is now found in self-satisfaction. After all, with no one to support or pamper, I am now free to do whatever I want, whenever I want. And so we have single people who are idolizing the concept of singleness and what it affords them, but we also have married people making a God out of their families. And both are failing to find their identity in Jesus Christ. And so immediately, there is an idolatry that's going on that all of us, regardless of your marital status, that we must guard against. Notice this in your notes, coming up on the screen, what that is. Don't look to marriage and singleness for your identity. Identity is not found in our marital status, it is found in our redemptive status. In other words, whether you're married or single, as Christ followers, listen, we are redeemed by God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and our identity is now found in Jesus Christ. And this reality must govern our lives regardless of what marital status we happen to be in. With this gospel reality now in full view, Paul addresses specifically those who are single and even wondering if they should pursue marriage now that they have been redeemed by God. This is actually one of the questions that the church at Corinth wrote to Paul. 
And they were asking Paul some questions, and this is one of them in a letter that they sent to him. And he's now responding back. And Paul answers this specific question to singles of whether or not, now that I've been redeemed, should I pursue marriage or should I remain single? And Paul answers this question in verses 25 through 38. Paul begins with some really good advice to those of us who are single. This advice is found in verse 25. Look at it with me again. Paul says, now concerning virgins. When he uses the word virgins, it's a, a word to describe those who have never been married, perhaps even those who are betrothed or engaged to be married. The application still holds true, though, for those who have been married and are now single again. And so whether you're single for the first time or you're single again by the death of your spouse or perhaps through a divorce, the application is true here. His advice to us as singles. Look what he says now concerning virgins. I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. In other words, he begins by saying God didn't give a command, a specific command regarding this question of whether or not to pursue marriage or to remain single. But Paul says we can trust in his advice. Why? Because he's an apostle of Jesus, of, of God. And as an apostle, he is now speaking on behalf of God. And so what he says is through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we can trust his advice. It is trustworthy. And Paul himself, remember we saw this last Sunday, was probably married at one point in his life, and now he has been single for some time. And so Paul has experienced both married life and what it means to be single again and he speaks out of the heart of wisdom he even speaks out of the inspiration of the holy spirit and we can summarize his advice to singles this way here it is big picture you are free in christ to consider marriage one of your goals or you are free in Christ as well to consider singleness your assignment from the Lord. That's what he's saying big picture here. That's his advice. Now, this might not be earth-shattering advice for us today, but it would have been earth-shattering advice in Paul's day. Here's why. If you remember, in Paul's day, an ultimate premium was placed on marriage, especially for women. And that's because your family was not only your economic security, but your meaning in life as well. A woman without a family during Paul's day would have been a social outcast. Her singleness would have been seen as a sign of her social failure. Some singles still feel this even today, though. A stigma has been placed on your singleness. And you're, in fact, if you're honest, you're tired of people always assuming that there is something wrong with you because you're not yet married. But Paul, what he does in this chapter here, 
he completely shatters this paradigm by presenting singleness not only as a valid option, but perhaps even a better one. Paul says in verse 38, So then, he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. But at the same time, Paul says marriage is legitimate too. We see this in verse 28 when he says, But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. Aren't you thankful for that, right? Amen. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. And then he says later on in verse 36, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry if that's what they so choose. Paul recognizes that both marriage and singleness are highly valued by God. But he also wishes, as Paul writes this, he kind of gives his heart to us. He kind of opens up and he tells us, but after all, I, here's my personal wish. I wish everyone was single like me. And he tells us why then in verse 35. And this I say for your own profit or for your own benefit, not that I may put a leash on you. In other words, not that I may restrain you but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. That's why he wishes everyone would remain single as him. All for the sake of radical devotion to God. And so what Paul is saying is marriage may be the expected norm, but singleness is exceptional when you redeem your singleness for radical devotion to serve God and his gospel mission. So the question becomes, how do we do this? How then do you redeem your singleness for radical devotion? Well, Paul doesn't leave us guessing. He actually tells us how. And so I want to break this down into two simple points of how we allow God to redeem our singleness for radical devotion to him. The first point is this, recognize, see something as true about your state of singleness. Recognize the assurances of being single. First of all, if you're single here this morning, listen to me carefully. You can be completely assured of God's favor in this assignment in your life. I know that the same thing can be said for marriage, but Paul is speaking into a situation here where some balance and wisdom was needed. And Paul wants us to know something. And if you're single here this morning, he wants you in particular to know that singleness is not some subpar, second-class deal that you endure until a better deal comes along. Singles are not relegated to the junior varsity team where they wait to move up to the varsity team when they get married. Paul says, no way. You can be completely confidently assured of God's favor in this assignment in your life. 
And then Paul begins to describe some of those assurances. Three divine assurances we have from God himself. Number one, notice this, singleness, he says, is good. It is good. Three different times Paul says singleness is good. We saw it earlier in this series back in chapter 7, verse 8, where he says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. And now we see it again here specifically in this passage, in verse 28, where he says it twice in one verse. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Paul seems to argue that singleness is good because there is great joy and there is great purpose to be found in being single. It's not subpar, it's not second class. You're not waiting for a better deal to come along. Singleness, as your assignment from the Lord, is good now. Ryan Griffith, he writes, and I read his words, I quote his words here. He says, what's crystal clear is that Paul isn't some masochistic killjoy wishing that others would joy him in his pain of unrequited sexuality. He doesn't seem to view singleness or celibacy as any hindrance to joy. Who, after all, talks more about joy than this single apostle? Paul has a friend in every town. His letters are cheerful, full of joy of a man whose life in Christ is also full of meaningful relationships. He has no wife but countless spiritual children. Despite his countless sufferings, he chooses to live another day for the joy of the church than to be in the presence of Christ. His life of singleness is not a bleak winter waiting for the spring of marriage. Paul not only sees singleness as legitimate, but as good. And that word good can also be translated as beautiful. I ask you singles here, have you ever viewed your marital status in that regard? This assignment that God has given to me at this present time in my life, it is beautiful. Regardless what family and friends may say, regardless of what culture may say, it is beautiful. That's the assurance that you have from God himself. Paul gives us another assurance. He says singleness is not only good, but it is actually God's gift. It is God's gift. Again, notice what Paul writes in verse 7. He says, For I wish that all men, all people, were even as I myself. But, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. In other words, Paul is simply saying, I wish everyone was single like I am. However, however, I do recognize that God has gifted some with singleness and others with marriage. Now, this means whatever marital state you are in right now, in the present, you can be sure that's the gift that God has given to you. There's no wondering about that. So don't ask married people, hey, do you have the gift of marriage? That's a dumb question. It's a meaningless question. 
Of course they have the gift of marriage. They're married, right? They have the gift. Now, they maybe didn't realize that when they said, I do. But the moment they said, I do, God gave them the gift of marriage. They maybe don't nurture that gift. Married people maybe don't appreciate that gift, but they have the gift. They're married after all. And in the same way, don't ask single people, hey, do you have the gift of singleness? Listen, if you're single here this morning, then you've been given this gift for the present time. Will your gift last for the next three years, five years, ten years, or twenty years? I don't know how long that gift is going to last in your life. Here's what we do know. Is that God is sovereign, and singleness is God's gift to those who are single, and we can be, you can be, assured that God's gifts are always good. They're beautiful. Now, that doesn't mean accepting singleness as a gift is easy. Paul's not saying that. It's not. Paul's not denying reality here. Oftentimes, it is a struggle to trust God with the gift that he's given you, including the gift of marriage. Ada Lum, who was a single missionary, She's now retired. She's in her 90s. She admits, and I quote her words, for a long time I did not consider that my single status was a gift from the Lord. I did not resent it. To be frank, in my earlier idealistic period, I thought because I had chosen singleness, I was doing God a favor. But in later years, I was severely tested again and again and again on that choice. Then, through Paul's words in life and my subsequent experiences, it gently dawned on me that God had given me a superb gift. Margaret Clarkson, another single missionary who is now in her 60s, writes, Multitudes of single Christians of every age and circumstance have proved God's sufficiency in singleness. He has promised to meet our needs and he honors his word. If we seek fulfillment in him, we shall find it. It may not be easy, but whoever said the Christian life is easy. The badge of Christ's discipleship was a cross. Why must I live my life alone? I do not know. But Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life, and I believe in the sovereignty of God, and I accept my singleness from his hand. He could have ordered my life otherwise, but he has chosen not to do so. And as his child, I trust his love and wisdom. And so you can be assured in your singleness that it is good and that it is a gift from God to you. But notice number three, you can be assured as well that singleness is for God's glory. It is for God's glory. Both marriage and singleness present us with unique challenges. Both marriage and singleness present us with unique opportunities. And both marriage and singleness present us with unique rewards. And the ultimate issue is not whether you're married or you're single, but how we respond to each gift that we have been given. How we glorify God with each gift. 
Listen, God has a design in marriage, and God has a design in singleness, and it's not that we're missing out of his design when we're married or when we're single. Married people should not read 1 Corinthians 7 here and think, well, I could be so much more effective for the Lord in his kingdom if I didn't have a spouse and kids. Perhaps I should just walk out on them. That way I could serve God better. That's a twisted view in which to read this. At the same time, singles should not read 1 Corinthians 7 here and think, well, I could have a better testimony for the gospel if I was married and had kids. That also is a twisted view of what Paul is saying here. God has different designs in both, and they're both for his glory. And here in verses 25 through 38, Paul is reminding us that singleness has a purpose that we must be careful not to waste. In other words, Paul is exhorting those of you who are single, don't squander the gift of your singleness. Don't abuse it. Don't squander it. Don't waste it. God has clearly not designed singleness to prolong adolescence into our 20s and 30s so that we can play more video games and wander aimlessly through life. God has designed singleness for his glory, just as he has designed marriage for his glory. So how do we do this then? How do we allow God, how do we submit ourselves to God in our marital status that we're in, whether it's marriage or singleness, but specifically focused on singleness here, how do we submit that to the God himself that he is sovereign over my marital status as single right now? And submit it to the point that he redeems it for his radical devotion, for his glory. Well, number two here is to maximize the advantages of being single. So first of all, we need to see our singleness for what it is. Recognize the assurances that God gives you in being single. But then two, maximize this gift. Maximize the advantages. Paul is calling attention to some of the advantages now of being single, and he's exhorting singles to maximize those advantages for God's glory in the spread of the gospel. And so for Paul, listen, these advantages are all about missional. They are missional advantages for the glory of God, which is why he wishes everyone was single like him. And specifically, Paul calls attention to the advantages of having more freedom than one has than marries. So notice three of these missional advantages. The first advantage of singleness is more freedom to cope with present distress and pressures. This first advantage is because of the pressures we live under in this world. Both external pressures from the culture around us and internal pressures of marriage itself. Look again what Paul writes in verses 26 through 28. Paul says, I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. 
so that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such, in other words, those that choose to marry, such will have trouble in the flesh. But I would spare you. Now Paul recommends singleness in light of the challenging circumstances in Corinth at this time in history. He speaks of this quote, present distress in verse 26. And then he refers to the trouble in the flesh in verse 28. The present distress speaks of of external issues. And so Paul is referring to a particular times of crisis in life. And we don't know exactly what the present distress was in Corinth. We have no idea. Paul doesn't reveal that to us, that of what the present distress was going on in Corinth when he writes back to this church in Corinth. He just makes reference to it. Perhaps the Christians in Corinth, they could have been suffering through a famine. That's what some people think. Others think that perhaps they were maybe even suffering through some type of persecution as Christ followers. Whatever this, quote, present distress was, these were challenging days particularly for married couples. And as a single, perhaps you're even wondering about now, well, how does this even apply to me, Bruce? I mean, what's, you know, am I, I'm not in the midst of a famine, and I'm not being persecuted right now for my faith. So where's the application? And believe me, I can appreciate that. However, there are many other situations that might qualify as a, quote, present distress in our lives such as completing college, unemployment, job difficulty, financial debt, social turmoil, personal addictions, problems, are all stresses that could render Paul's advice here every bit as practical today as it was when it was first offered. Now, Paul is not against marriage. Don't think that. Paul is very pro-marriage. However, he recognizes something here. He recognizes that coping with present distresses, whatever they may be, is difficult enough for a single person, but it is multiplied if somebody is married. In other words, he's acknowledging reality. And so Paul then says, out of concern, For those of you who are still single, he says, out of concern, in verse 28, but even if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you of that. Now, this word trouble, it's a really interesting word. And he's actually associating this word trouble with marriage, which is just funny in and of itself. And then I would spare you of that. And all of us who are married, we're like, you know, why didn't Paul warn me that earlier before I said I did? This word trouble, it means pressed together, which is a very apt description of the marriage relationship where you have two people who are pressed together. 
in the closest way possible, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. They are two very distinct individuals with different personalities, different temperaments, different wills, different backgrounds, and different struggles that they have brought as baggage into the marriage. And even as Christ followers who have been redeemed, they are still subject to the limitations and weakness of the flesh. Which means you have two sinful, selfish, proud, forgetful, thoughtless people pressed together in a marriage relationship. And that's true even in the most godly of marriages. You put all those collection of problems together when two people are bound together in marriage and the problems of sinful human nature then are multiplied. And again, Paul makes it clear that marriage is a legitimate option for single people. But he also wants to spare us unnecessary trouble that is inherent to marriage for the sake of the gospel. Hence, Paul is saying that if you're single, it is good. It is good to thoughtfully consider remaining single because you have more freedom to cope with present distresses. So don't think marriage will make you happy. Don't think marriage will solve your problems. Don't think marriage will bring you closer to God. Don't think marriage will make you a better person. Don't think marriage will fulfill your dreams because it won't, because it can't. One pastor and author put it this way. If you are miserable being single, how can you be sure you'll be happy being married? The happiest married people are generally those who were happy while being single. Changing your marital status doesn't guarantee a change in your happiness or your contentment or your satisfaction in life. Discontented singles aren't usually the best candidates for a happy marriage. So that's the first advantage of singleness. Paul is trying to spare you of some of the troubles that are inherent in a marriage. And at the same time, recognize in reality that while you're single, it is easier to cope with, manage, deal with the present distresses in life in general. You have more freedom then to serve God with radical devotion, which brings us then to our second advantage of singleness. You have more freedom to maintain an eternal perspective and priorities as a single person. In fact, in light of the temporary nature of this world, Paul challenges us to live with eternity in mind. And by the way, that's true for both singles and marrieds. Paul writes in verse 29 through 31, look at it. He says, but this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. Now, Paul's argument here in these three verses seems to be that single people have more freedom to maintain, to live out an eternal perspective and priorities in this life. This phrase that Paul uses, 
this first phrase, the time is short. He is reminding us of the brevity of life. No one lives forever in this world. And so Paul's point is that we should live our life with a sense of spiritual urgency. The reality of eternity is barreling down on us. And in light of the fact that Jesus may return at any time ought to impact the priorities that we live out now. And then you take the bottom phrase, the last phrase that Paul uses, where he says the form of this world is passing away. It actually comes from a Greek expression that means something like this world is but a shadow of reality. And the idea is that this life is here one moment and it is gone the next. Everything we see in this life, it is fleeting, it's temporary. And though we must engage in the things of this world, we also know that all of this that we engage in and with is what? It's passing away. And so the time is short, Paul says, and the world is passing away. And the obvious question we ought to be asking ourselves right now, whether married or single, is how should that reality impact our lives? Matthew Henry said it this way. We should live with holy indifference to the things of this world. Why? Because the gospel changes everything. The reality of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, and his soon return should radically transform how we look at life and how we live life. See, are we... Are we being consumed with this present world, this present age, or are we living in light of the promised age to come? That's the frame, the paradigm in which Paul poses this. You have the present world, but there's another one that's coming that has been promised. The kingdom is coming. It's not here, not yet, but it's coming. And so he bookends it with this. And that should radically impact all of us who are Christ followers. We live radically different lives according to radically different priorities because we know the time is short and the world is passing away. And when it comes to marriage, Paul says in verse 29, from now on, even those who have wives, or he could also say in application, even those who have husbands should be as though they had none. That's right, if you're married here. Paul is saying, live as if you don't have a spouse. You're like, what? That's radical. Is that, is that heretical? What's he saying there? Now, I must admit, that's, that's, that's a verse you don't often hear quoted at many weddings. I thought about, man, I need to include that in my next wedding service simply means Paul is saying here listen enjoy your marriage make the most of your marriage but don't make your marriage the most important thing in life don't make marriage the ultimate source of your happiness 
As Christ followers, we should treat marriage differently than the world does. We should neither disregard it as unnecessary, but nor glorify it as the solution to all of our problems in life. After all, marriage is not eternal. What? Freaking some of you out. Do you realize Jesus said there will be no marrying in heaven? Why? So keep marriage in the proper perspective. Love your spouse. Yes, love your spouse in a way that would be pleasing to Christ if he returned today by neither neglecting your spouse nor idolizing your spouse. The idea is then further clarified by what Paul says in regard to this weeping and rejoicing and buying and using this world. Paul is not saying we should never weep, but that we should weep in a different way in light of the gospel. After all, the resurrection alters our weeping so that we weep with hope, knowing that death is not the final end. We should rejoice, but we don't get so caught up in joy of the things of this world that we forget suffering is a part of life too. We should buy, but we should be wise stewards. And what you do buy, hang on loosely. Be careful lest the things you possess end up possessing you. And when it comes to engaging the world, enjoying the world, don't indulge yourself so much that you lose your focus on what really matters. Listen, we await a heavenly home for all eternity. And so in these areas, marriage, Paul is saying, can quickly compromise the spiritual urgency with which we are called to live as Christ followers. Paul believes... He's suggesting, it's his good advice, that a single person has more freedom to maintain an eternal perspective and live out eternal kingdom priorities. Now, that is not to say, though, please hear this, that is not to say that if you're single, you don't have struggles in this life and troubles in this life. Paul's not denying your reality. But you have them, what he's saying, for one instead of two. Or for three, four, five if you have kids. Which brings us then to the third advantage of singleness. And that is more freedom to serve the Lord with undivided affection and attention. In other words, as a single person, you can be totally given to the serving the Lord in ways that married people simply can't. Here's Paul's argument. Here's his reasoning, his logic for this. Notice what he says in verses 32 through 35. But I want you, he's speaking again to singles, I want you to be without care. And don't you just hear, he's like a father writing to his children, says, listen, I care for you. I'm coming at this from wisdom and concern, from an eternal perspective. And I want you to be without care because the gospel is that so important here. 
I want you to be without this. I want to spare you from troubles that are inherent to marriage. Notice what he says. I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord. How he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world. How he may please his wife. Now Paul is not saying that's wrong. Don't misinterpret what Paul's writing. He's not saying that's wrong. Listen, if you're married, you need to care about how to please your spouse in a biblical way. And if you don't, you've got issues. You're going to have issues in your marriage then. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be whole, both, holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, for your own benefit, not that I may put a leash on you or restrain you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction." Now, Paul, again, he's not saying, please hear this. He is not saying that it's better to be single because then, oh, then you can really please the Lord as if somehow being married and pleasing God are at odds and incompatible. So what is he saying? He is, again, he's acknowledging reality that married people Listen, have cares and concerns about pleasing their spouse, and rightly so. Marriage requires my affection and my attention to my dear wife. At the same time, while serving the Lord with devotion. But Paul is, understands and he acknowledges that my affection for my wife, my attention to my wife, and serving the Lord, it is divided. Paul is simply pointing out the fact that a single person, therefore, has greater freedom to serve God because he or she doesn't have a spouse. Being single allows you more freedom to serve the Lord with undivided attention and affection. As a single man, Paul had the freedom to travel, get this, on three different missionary journeys across Asia Minor. A freedom he wouldn't have possessed if he was married. As a single person, listen to me, you have phenomenal opportunity to devote more time, energy, and resources to fulfilling God's mission in the church and the community and even across this world. Rena Taylor, a single missionary in Kenya, stated it well. Being single has meant that I, have, uh, that I am free to take risks that I might not take were I a mother of a family dependent upon me. Being single has given me freedom to move around the world without having to pack up a household first. And this freedom has brought to me moments that I would not trade for anything else this side of eternity. Trevor Douglas, a single male missionary, agrees when he writes, the first advantage of being single is that it's best adapted to perilous situations, in rugged life among primitive tribes, in gorilla-infested areas, or in disease and famine. The single man has only himself to worry about. 
Paul claims that being single best fits the shortness of the time. Doing God's work is a momentary thing. Advantages and opportunities come and go very quickly, and the single lifestyle enables one to give the most out of the time God gives for his work. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that married people shouldn't take risk to advance the gospel. That is a false paradigm as well. This doesn't mean that when World Outreach rolls around next October that all the married people say, well, let's sign up all the single people to be missionaries because they can take risk. I can't. I'm married. So it's not that this excuses us as married people here from taking risks for the sake of the gospel. But Paul is saying that single people have more freedom to serve the Lord in ways that married people don't. This entire passage is beautiful because it offers a glorious view of the single life. Be assured, Singleness is God's good gift to those who are single. And if you are single here this morning, the good news is that you can live life in Christ to the full right now. You're not in limbo. You're not incomplete. You don't have to wait for marriage before life can, quote, really begin. As a Christ follower, listen to me, you have been redeemed by God for radical devotion to God. And so if you're single here, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is saying to you, use God's gift for, of singleness for God's glory. That is his whole exhortation here. Now, that doesn't mean everybody who is single here this morning is supposed to be a missionary in Africa. Oh, it's not what that means either. But it does mean, if you're single, you've been given a gift to maximize for the glory of God. And the question then becomes, how are you maximizing your gift of singleness for spreading the gospel and advancing God's kingdom? Now, obviously, that question could be asked of us with the gift of marriage as well. I leave you with this challenge from Andrew Farmer. Listen to what he writes in his book, The Rich Single Life. He says, undivided devotion to the Lord is the essence of biblical identity for the single adult. It is rooted in the sovereignty of a God who places people in appropriate situations for the best possible reasons. It is steeped in the love of a God who uses even the most difficult of situations for the greatest possible benefit. It is sustained by the wisdom of a God whose timing is perfect and whose guidance is sure. If you are a Christian, don't despise the state to which you have been called. Live in the gift of your singleness, for as long as you have the gift, 
And whether or not God ever ordains the prospect of marriage for your life, bring faith for the present and hope for the future because there is much to be done. Who better to set a hand to the task than you? Let's pray. Lord, we, we humble ourselves before you. And we confess that we are needy, needy people of your grace. And we thank you that that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ for both singles and those of us who are married. Lord, thank you through our faith in your son, Jesus Christ, that we have been redeemed from ourselves. We've been redeemed from our sins and from the judgment of our sins. And Lord, you have set us on a course for all eternity. And so, Lord, help us to live with that perspective in mind, that this world is temporary, it is passing away, but we await something greater, a heavenly home, a kingdom that is coming. And in the meantime, Lord, you have called us to your mission. And so help us, whether we are single or married, to live on mission for you in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I especially pray, though, for those who are single here this morning, and I ask that you would grace them, you would encourage them, and you would reassure them that their singleness, it is good, it is beautiful, it is your gift to them right now, and that they would maximize it for your glory. And so, Lord, encourage them in that regard. It's in these things we pray. Amen. As we prepare for our morning offering, let me just encourage you. We have our, our Easter extravaganza that is coming up here very quickly. Uh, Easter is early, and it is, uh, Easter is April 1st. Our extravaganza is Saturday, March 31st, and we need your help to serve at it, to volunteer to serve at it, as well as uh, coming and helping us to fill the eggs with candy, which will take place on March 24th down in our multi-purpose room at 9.30 in the morning. So I'm asking you as a church congregation here at LifeBridge, if you would carve out time on Saturday, March 24th, about an hour of your time at 9.30, hour and a half, to help us fill uh, Easter eggs with candy, and then carve out on March 31st time in your schedule to serve uh, at our Easter extravaganza and uh, bring kids, if you have kids that are, they can come, teens, middle-aged, senior adults, you're welcome to serve at it. Connect with our community. It will be taking place right here on our church property and uh, from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. And it's just a great opportunity for us to uh, serve our community, uh, make known this is who we are, and invite them to come and participate in our Easter worship services and just let them know here's, here's our church, and we're here to bridge the gap uh, and help you to do that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have a mission that we're on, and we want you to join us. And we're asking you to help us do that as a congregation here at LifeBridge to help us serve and make that a possibility. So there's sign-ups on the back table. Man, when we get done with our last worship song here, man, make a beeline and sign up to serve at our Easter extravaganza. All right, let's receive our morning offering.